Right. Uh, if you read your notices very carefully, you'll notice that uh, this week doesn't quite match up with what they said last week, because it was originally going to be some Steph preaching this week, but for family reasons, we've uh, swapped the two around. So therefore, health, we health reasons. Health reasons. Yeah. We're fine. They're fine now. Yeah, if health reasons within their family, we have swapped them out. Is that better? Great. Okay, so we're going to jump a little bit now, and I'm going to read from 1 Peter chapter 3, and verses 8 to 17, and the uh, words should be appearing on the screen in a moment. Uh, so I'm going to go straight into the reading this time. Uh, you'll have to wait a bit later to find out what the props are in the bag. Okay, so... 1 Peter chapter 3 and from verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to, those you, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behaviour in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." When I came to prepare this passage, the original theme I was given a topic, and if you look at your uh, sort of heading your Bible gives, it'll probably put an emphasis on suffering. Now, reading the passage, there's almost too much in this passage to cover in one go. And so actually, I'm not going to spend all the time talking about suffering for righteousness sake. But Peter does come back later in this uh, chapter to look at suffering again. So I will touch on suffering, but there's a lot more to be said about the topic, and we'll come back to that later. I think the first word in the bit, I, bit is, can be misused by uh, preachers quite a bit, where it says, finally and it comes halfway through uh, the uh, letter. So two and a half chapters in, you get finally, and there's still two and a half chapters to go. Unfortunately, looking in the commentaries, this is not an excuse for uh, uh, preachers to go on for twice their allotted uh, length of time, uh, because uh, really here he's not summarising the whole letter, he's summarising what he's been teaching about holy living. And so... Uh, you 
you know, watch out if I use the word finally, but hopefully it will be towards the end. Right, verse 8. Let's have another look at this verse. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Right, let's get past the finally word. I think the important bit here is all of you. It's easy when we uh, read the scriptures to think that the person writing is writing about somebody else. And it's always, when you come to things like that, easy to see other people who this applies to, and you can be really sure that you know, they need to pick up on this point and the other point. But here, Peter is talking to all of them. So what, what he's saying is these are some of the most important points. And actually, some of the most important points which come in the way we live our Christian life are like these, and they're all social. There's nothing, if you like, directly theological here. It's very much how do we relate to one another. Now, last time I spoke, I got accused of some of my illustrations being a bit cheesy and are laying it on thick. Uh, those are the things which came back to me from various people. But unfortunately, James also made the point that whenever he now sees a packet of Philadelphia, it does remind him of uh, what I was talking about. And this is, remember, the third of our bits here. Brotherly love. That's what Philadelphia means. Okay? So whenever you see Philadelphia cheese, remind yourself... You need to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And in fact, actually, reading this passage, I got a bit puzzled. Who is Peter talking about in this thing? Who should it be showing brotherly love to? Is he talking about how we relate to other people in the church? Or is he talking about in the wider community? It looks like here he's talking about the church, but in the context he draws out of it as we go on, he's talking much more about the wider community. And I think Tom Wright had a very helpful pastoral point on this when he was commenting on this verse, and he says, we start in the church, but you don't stop there. So, to learn how to apply these things, the church is a good place to start, but that should change our overall behaviour so that when we're outside the church, we do not behave in... Uh, we be start behaving in these ways as well. And looking at this, brotherly love is in the middle and sort of goes across all of them. We need to care for one another. Then at the start and end of the list, we've got things to do with the mind. Our mind should be... We should have unity of mind. We should have a humble mind. So we should be united on what are the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. We should be clear on who Jesus is. We should be clear on his death on the cross. We should be clear on his resurrection. We need unity of this. There can be no disunity on that. But it's a mind which is humble, it's not one uh, which is uh, 
holding on to itself. So when we are considering things, we don't get overly fixed on tradition. We want to make sure that what we're united on is actually what the Bible teaches and not just the way things have been done in the past. We want equally, we want to make sure we're not being swayed by novelty. It's easy to think that because something is new or it's exciting, while things which people have done in the past is old and boring. And in our culture, sort of the new and exciting is often seen as being more positive. But we need to make sure that we're not unduly swayed by novelty. But equally, we need to be open to correction. So if the way our minds have been thinking have been wrong, we need to be willing to change the way we think and not just stick with the way we've done things in the past. And then we have the other pair. We have sympathy, we have a tender heart. We need to be thinking about other people more than ourselves. We need to be thinking about how do other people react. We need to be thinking about, uh, you know, what effect, you know, what, why are they behaving the way they do? What is their background? We need to not just be coming at things in a harsh way. Right, the illustration for today comes on the tender heart. And seeing my my things have been accused of being cheesy, I thought I'd stick with cheese for this one. What happens when you mature? Because we want to become... Obviously, we don't want Paul giving a clear answer. But I've got two... Here, I've got two kinds of cheese. Okay? And it strikes me that there's two ways cheese matures. Right? We have this kind of cheese here, and obviously these ones are straight out of Tesco, so it won't illustrate it perfectly. But with this kind of cheese, as it matures, it gets softer in the middle. And then you've got this kind of cheese, we're talking just about cut, and when this matures, it becomes crumbly, and it has a hard crust on the outside. Now, I think what Peter is saying here, if as we become more mature as Christians, our hearts become more tender, not harder. And if we find that as we develop as Christians, that we're becoming harder in the way we respond to other people, in the way that we react to other people, something's gone wrong. And it's something we need to watch out for. Now, as Paul said last week, if you've been a Christian for a long time, it's easy just to keep things going, even if you're not really getting a lot of spiritual input, if I understood you correctly. Yeah? So, but... If we don't continually get input from the Holy Spirit, if we don't continually get input from one another, the long-term effect is that we become crumbly and crusty on the outside, very sensitive to uh, challenge from other people. But we're called to continue and keep a tender heart, 
not one which is closed off to other people. Peter then illustrates this from the history of the Jewish people. He says from verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, I don't think it comes out as well on the screen. They can see the inverted commas at the bottom. But in my Bible, most of that, from verse 10, 11, 12, is, if you like, indented a little. Because most of what I've just read is a quote from something which David had written about a thousand years earlier. Now we probably think of David as being one of the sort of king of Israel who is, was seen as the, if you like, the best example of what a king of Israel should look like. But at the time he wrote those words he was not king of Israel. The prophet had anointed him and told him he would become king of Israel. But at the time he wrote those words, he was on the run from the current king of Israel, Saul. Saul had been the first king of Israel. He had done many mighty things for God. But then when David came along, God used him even more. And Saul became jealous. And David had to flee. So at the time David was writing these words, he was actually hiding with Israel's enemies, the Philistines. He was trying, having to portray himself as being a bit doolally. So therefore... Uh, although the Philistines would actually accept him, they wouldn't sort of, uh, they want to keep him slightly at uh, arm's length because, you know, as the king of the Philistines uh, of the, uh, he was staying with said, you know, haven't I got enough madmen that you bring another one to me? So he was having to live a life with his nation's enemies trying to live righteously. We know from that time that he had opportunities to kill Saul, but he didn't take them, because he recognised Saul had been made king by God, and it wasn't his job to go and speed things up, even though he knew God had called him to be king after Saul. So he was a classic person who, having had evil done to him, could easily have done evil back. But he didn't, because he knew that wasn't God's way. And so, the thing we're called to is, you know, we are called to have these things, a unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. 
The thing is, we can think that if we do that, people will take advantage of us. The answer is, yes, they will. No. But, that is not, the, pri the primary thing here is not defending ourselves. The primary thing here is serving God. In verse 12, uh, you find David says this, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. So therefore, if we do what God calls us, live, us, live the way he calls us, he, his ears are open to our prayers. I think this is something which we'll get touched on possibly next week uh, in the context of uh, marriage. But if we want God to hear our prayers, he hears us whether we deserve it or not. But if we are actually responding our lives in the way he calls us to, we know that there is a blessing in that he will then uh, open his ears to our prayers doesn't always mean we get the answer we want because God always gives us what is best for us not necessarily what we ask for so sometimes we might ask for a temptation to be taken away but God answer by giving us the strength to stand so let's Expect to hear answers to our prayers, but let's equally be open to the fact the answers might not be what we expect. Because he goes on to talk about situations of persecution and suffering. So from verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behaviour in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter, again, if you look at the whole letter he writes, it's a bit difficult sometimes to get a picture of what his view on suffering is, and on persecution. Looking at these verses, his verse 13, he's basically saying, if you do good, why should anybody harm you? And then in verse 14, he goes on to say, but even if they do. So he's very much taking the context that suffering for Christ's sake is first unlikely, in verse 13. And in verse 14, he then says it's very unlikely, effectively. But if we look at the whole letter, in chapter 1 and verse 6, he's writing to people who've been grieved by various trials. 
And in chapter 4, in the later bit, in verse 12, he tells them not to be surprised at fiery trials. So it's one of these things we need to keep a balance on, and as I say, it's something I will want to come back to and talk in more detail later. But there do seem to, in my mind, to be about three sort of levels of trials, sort of the everyday discrimination, uh, etc. Something like this, which is a bit more uh, detailed, and then the much more full-on persecution. We need to remember, when Peter was writing this, there had been no full-scale Roman persecution of Christians. That only started when Peter himself got killed uh, a bit later in Nero's time. So we're not talking, in this context, of people being thrown to the lions. But we are talking in a context where people are being slandered and maligned. If you look at the history of the Roman treatment of other religious groups other than just straight paganism, you find that with one exception, and that wasn't the Christians, that each group at some point or another got dis uh, persecuted and discriminated against. And the one which didn't was because it was uh, mainly in the army and never wanted to upset the army. Uh, but what you tend to find happens when they want to put a group down, they start with, the th place it starts with is slander. So you get accusations of sexual immorality, you get accusations probably of eating babies and all the other kinds of things which come up. So the thing is, if you wanted in that period, you wanted to do somebody down, you start with accusations that basically they are beyond sort of normal human uh, tolerance in their behaviour. And it's also fairly clear that the Roman authorities didn't really believe the accusations they were making, because when they put restrictions, they weren't really linked to the accusations they made. But I think it's important that we know a bit about how Christians were persecuted in this period, so it's something I want to come back to later, and also how Christians are persecuted now. Because persecution ultimately comes back from the enemy, and the enemy is not creative. So the ways people were persecuted in the past tend to be the same sorts of ways that people are persecuted now, it's just that uh, the actual details are different, but the basic concepts are the same. And I think we need to recognise that we live in a society where there is a basic lack of religious knowledge of any kind, whether about Christianity or other religions. So, for example, when uh, recently some of us were at... Uh, the uh, Reasons Day on, on Apologetics, Carl Maidment was talking about that recently he had a policeman following him for two days. It wasn't that he'd done anything wrong. It's just that when the police get to a certain level, they have to do some diversity training. And as part of their diversity training, they have to spend two days with somebody from a culture they're not familiar with. 
And this policeman decided he didn't actually know anything much about Christians, and therefore he spent a couple of days with a Christian uh, minister following around what he did and learning about it. So, we, you know, we're dealing, we'll be dealing with situations where people don't have any particular knowledge and therefore uh, would easily uh, accept things which are not true about us. I think if we look at our society, the main thing which uh, we are intolerant about in our society is people who don't show inclusion and diversity. It's one of the big issues coming up at the moment. The interesting thing is, if you actually do research, you find that the church is the second most diverse uh, place you find in the country. The only place more diverse than the church is a football stadium. But if you look in terms of mix of ages, mix of different ethnic groups, mix of different class, you find more diversity in a church than you will find almost anywhere else in the country. And yet we are often the people who are accused of being intolerant and not showing diversity. That's the way life is. And we should expect it. Because Peter tells them to expect being slandered. If you want to get a feel for what it feels like, if you uh, have a look on the BBC website, uh, Rupert Wingford Hayes, I don't know if you come across him, he's I think the BBC Asia correspondent, he was recently chucked out of North Korea. But he's got a bit on the BBC website where he talks about the interview he had for 10 hours before they decided to chuck him out rather than put him on trial. And he was having to try and explain he was being accused that he thought that Korean people were ugly and had voices like dogs, based on what he had written on the BBC. Now, if you really want a good exercise, have a look at his three articles first and see where that comes from. But he said it was very difficult to refute an accusation of something you didn't actually say, but people were twisting what you said to give that meaning. And this is something I think you will, we will find in this sort of if you like, middle level of persecution is that you get accused of things which you haven't said or things you have said get twisted to give a meaning different from what you mean. Uh, let me give an example of why things didn't go well for the Christians in Roman times at this period. The Romans had a very strong view that you should show respect to your ancestors and part of that was showing respect to your ancestors' gods. So therefore, if somebody became a Christian and therefore wasn't willing to sacrifice to the gods, because there's only one God. Therefore, it showed that they had no respect for their ancestors. Secondly, because they wouldn't take part in the uh, uh, showing honour to the gods, if the crop failed, it's obviously because of the Christians, because they hadn't showed respect to the gods. Yeah? Totally logical. 
So anything which goes wrong, blame the Christians. Yeah? Why? That happened four weeks ago in India. Right? In the village of Catholi, you've had some people from one of the tribal groups there in the last three or four years have converted to Christianity. They refused to contribute to a Hindu festival celebrating Shitala, who is the goddess of sores, ghouls, pustules and disease. Now, fairly obviously, if you don't make offerings to this goddess, there's a risk that you're going to get disease in your village. Therefore, if these Christians are not willing to contribute to the offering to the god, they have therefore got no concern for the other people in the village. And they were basically forced out of the village violently. So that kind of logic still occurs. I think the way we tend to experience it here is often much more that we get told what we believe and therefore we must be intolerant. You know, it's something on the lines of, although, you know, you can put in almost any phrase you want in the, in the middle. You know, you are a Christian, so you must believe all gay people go to hell, so therefore you're intolerant. Alright? Now, you can argue however much you wish as to whether you agree with the statement that all gay people go to hell or not. But if somebody's got that fixed in their mind, that that's what Christians believe, that is what they are going to think about you, whether you actually believe it or not. I had a very frustrating time in the early days of the internet in the 90s, when I was corresponding with a Muslim uh, person, uh, and we're talking about the strengths and weaknesses of Christianity and Islam. And it was almost impossible, in the end I had to stop the discussion, because you couldn't because he was saying Christians believe this, this and this therefore and if I said but I don't believe that he said ah but such and such says this and either because of what the Quran says Christians believe or quoting so called Christian authorities whose theology I wouldn't accept in the first place you know but you're in a situation where somebody's not actually listening to what you're saying because they've got, an at, uh, they've got an attitude about you, and that's what they want to reinforce. And it's a frustration. And it's, this is the context in which Peter says, always be prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. All right? So it's in situations where somebody is... It's like misunderstanding you, possibly deliberately misunderstanding you, that we should have that ability even then to, and also as he says, with gentleness and respect. That's a difficult bit. If you think somebody is deliberately misunderstanding you, to answer them with gentleness and respect is difficult. But that's what we're called to do. So, to summarise on this part. In this passage, we're called to be tender-hearted, to care for one another, even when unjustly accused, even if slandered and persecuted. But we're also told not to give in to fear. 
Now, the next part of the uh, chapter, which I'll be looking at in two weeks' time, if you like, gives us the reasons why we shouldn't fear. Because ultimately, we know who is in control and who has, who, you know, as you would say with a book, you can turn to the back page and see who wins in the end. So ultimately, we should not have fear. And also, I think the thing with persecution is that we can have unwarranted fear of persecution. We should not be surprised if it happens, but we shouldn't expect it to happen to everyone. So therefore, it, uh, we shouldn't be fearful thinking that if I do something, inevitably I'm going to be persecuted. Things don't quite work that way. But recognising that even when we do what is good, persecution can follow and not have fear because we trust our Lord and Saviour. Okay. Pete, could you and the band come back up? And as I said, we will be looking at some of the things I've talked about in more detail in the later weeks.